right, you're listening to the That'll Preach podcast. Uh, I'm Brian. I am not here with Paul, but yeah, you, you, you might have just tuned out once you heard that. But just because I don't have another smart guy or a smart guy with me doesn't mean I, ha- I don't have a backup. So I brought in another really smart guy, Dr. Alistair Roberts. So hopefully he can balance out my, my non-academic uh, perspective. But uh, Dr. Roberts, uh, he is uh, somebody who works for the Theopolis Institute and the Davidin Institute. And he has also uh, created an incredible resource. It's, uh, he's been doing these daily reflections on the Bible over the course of a few years now. And it's a really, it's two, a years. Mass, two years, it's a massive project uh, and it's amazing. And it's something that I think everyone should really check out. But we're grateful to have you, uh, Alistair. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you for the invitation. It's good to be with you. Now, before we get started, I do want to ask something about the, uh, this, these daily meditations, these daily reflections. I remember you're on the record saying that these were, this was a labor of love. I mean, you were spending eight to nine hours a day. There's no way that's true. Eight to nine hours. <laughs> it's, it's seven hours of prayer, one hour of study, something like that. <laughs> well, I, I have pictures of the commentaries that I was working through for each of the um, books. And the sheer amount of time that it took just to do the research, to um, prepare rough notes, and then to actually do the recording was considerable. So it was about Nine hours for the first year, about seven hours for the second year. Well, that's an, uh, an amazing feat. And I think, uh, and, and I thought, man, if you saturate yourself with scripture for that long each day, that's got to be a transformative experience just for your own personal self. And uh, it's, if, if you haven't checked it out, uh, people listening, you really should check it out. I, I just go on YouTube and type in Alistair Roberts and whatever chapter of the Bible I'm curious about, <laughs> and then your reflections will pop up. And uh, that's 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 an incredible uh, project you have going on. I don't know how you have time to text Peter Lightheart little memes or you know funny YouTube videos. <laughs> like, I, do you just have, take a little break and do that? <laughs> he, he seems like a kind of guy that would do that, you know. But uh, we don't really have a, a meme thread set up anywhere. Um, we probably should do at some point. <laughs> I would love to see. You should make that public. As well. I'm not sure how used to used to memes he is. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah. Light, Lightheart <laughs> seems. Uh, and I don't know if he's up to date with all the technology, but <laughs> but uh, anyway, thank you for being on the show. I, I really wanted to talk to you uh, about something, a, a topic that you've been discussing a lot online. I know you've, you've had a series of dialogues uh, with Ben Miller um, on social discourse and even going into ideas of authority and government and how Christians are to view themselves sort of in the public sphere in relation to all the spheres of of social life. And uh, I've, I've found those conversations to be really, really helpful. Um, and something I've always appreciated about your work is that, uh, and I, I think Lightheart is like this too, where you seem to be able to synthesize a lot of different disciplines together and come up with some uh, unique insights and some, I think, very accurate insights about the world, about Christians and how they interact with each other, about how we understand our own uh, place in, in the world. And uh, one book in particular that uh, has really, I guess it's ironic, struck a nerve with me because it's based off of a failure of nerve, uh, is the book you wrote, Self and Leadership, or maybe it's Leadership and Self, either way. 
Self and leadership. Self I think. and leadership. Yeah. And it's a short book um, that I think I just downloaded a PDF you had offered. And uh, yeah. it's your reflections on Edwin Friedman and uh, some of his, you know, he's a Jewish rabbi, a family therapist, a leadership kind of developer. And uh, what I found fascinating was how you integrated his insights sort of on like a familial level um, with organizations or family systems and things like that to the broader level of our discourse, you know, between political parties, between theological camps, between church uh, denominations and, and, and things like that. And uh, I thought that that was a very insightful uh, connection, uh, particularly the, the concept of self-differentiation. And I just wanted to start by asking you, how did you first encounter Edwin Friedman and his thought? And where did those connections start happening uh, in, in your own mind? Yeah, I can't remember where I first encountered his thought. It was recommended to me, I think, through someone within the biblical horizons orbit. Um, and having read the book, it just clicked. There are a lot of things within what he's saying that have broad application for the way that we think, we speak, we form communities of discourse. And it just, as I was thinking through the ideas, I just saw so many more applications. And particularly as you're um, trying to establish a healthy context of Christian thought and discourse and feeling the uh, deficiencies and the dysfunctions of our current online discourse, it really seemed to speak to the sorts of questions that people need to be asking, but maybe aren't asking as carefully as they should. And the book is a very accessible, simple book in many respects. Its fundamental thesis is not a complicated one, but there's a lot within it that has implications that are far-reaching. And so, for me, it was an experience of epiphany reading through the book and recognising this just has so many ramifications. It's something that gives us ways of training our thinking more generally. And for me, it was partly a realisation that thinking well is a matter of managing our emotional state, among other things, managing our relations, managing the way that we are entangled with and related to the issues about which we're talking. And so the ability to negotiate that relationship in order to actually think well about the objects of our thought, it, when that clicked into place for me, I just realised this is something that I need to be thinking about in every single area of my thought. It's something that has implications if you're in an unhealthy emotional relationship with a particular issue, you just won't think clearly about it. So in my experience, it was the experience of dealing with a cult group and going into that sort of spiral of panic and anxiety when you see this particular position that you don't have the answers to and you recognize there's something there that is threatening. I don't know what it is. I don't know how to answer this. And you end up spiraling. And so the need in that moment for me was to step back to have a healthy emotional relationship to the issues and the questions, and then to reapproach it. And when I did that, the issues vanished. And reading Friedman later on, it, it made clear to me why that worked and why that particular move that I'd taken mm. at a key point in my Christian development had actually had the effect that it did. So you had actually read Friedman after experiencing in your own life 
what you didn't have words for it, but it was you were self differentiating. And, yes. uh, and and I think that that concept that you were speaking about, about thinking about our emotional reactivity or emotional responses, uh, it, we're, we're not just thinking about abstract ideas as like robots, but our emotions deeply affect the way that we can process another point of view or even react in a way that is sensible and reasonable. And uh, I, I read Failure of Nerve and it was in, in, in many ways a paradigm shift in the way I thought about how you interact with people. And uh, you, you think sometimes people will say, you know, you know, that there's a common phrase, facts don't care about your feelings, right? Just say the facts. It doesn't matter what emo- emotions are just, you know, things that happen. Just, just say the facts over and over again or something like that. The other thing is that emotions are everything, right? And that the truth should bend to those ideas. And so you sort of have people going, well, I'm just going to cut off people who disagree with me because it's not emotionally safe. Other people, it's like you run right into the fray and you don't recognize <laughs> how you yourself are being dysregulated by the conversation and no longer being a productive member of that conversation. And I love how Friedman kind of draws a line when he talks about self-differentiation as a way to, to regulate yourself for the sake of connection and conversation. And I think that that's a nice middle ground but one thing I had a difficult time was explaining exactly what self-differentiation is. So can you help me out with that, Alistair? <laughs> so the way I think about self-differentiation is akin to a skin. If you have a body without a skin, you can imagine you'd be in constant immune reaction against your environment and all the um, various um, bacterial, whatever it is that might infect you. And so If you don't have a skin, there are a number of different lines open to you. First of all, you could be in that constant immune reaction. You could alternatively quarantine yourself away from the dangerous environment. And Mm -hmm. so go into a cocoon and separate yourself. And the other possibility is to sterilize your environment, to completely transform your environment so that there are no toxins or dangerous substances that you could um, be infected by. And then the other possibility is just to succumb to whatever is within the environment. The skin is what enables you to be in a non-sterile environment and yet be safe Hmm. because it is something that gives you your own bodily integrity. It enables you to establish some sort of homeostasis within yourself and your body's regulations, its temperature, its um, ensuring that there is a barrier between things outside and inside and it's not just a continuum. And as a result, it enables you to be present and engaged, but without just being entangled, without being in a situation where everything that comes your direction is going to be taken into you. And Mm. so it's that barrier. And self-differentiation is what enables us to, it's like, I mean, we talk about having a thick skin. In some sense, it's that's a sort of self-differentiation. When someone says something, that you don't take that personally. You have a barrier that enables you to receive that statement and not just instantly react to it. You can receive the statement and then respond to it. And that difference between responding and reaction is a very important one for Friedman. The reaction is that sort of knee-jerk, instinctive, um, the way that a cornered animal might act, for instance, when it's in a position of danger, it's acting according to its 
nerves and instincts, it will strike out at you or it will try and run away. It's flight, fight or flight. And then response is what is enabled when you take your breath, you ground yourself, you keep a cool head, and then having had some action done towards you, you then take that break and then respond. And so reaction is that which is almost, it's caused by the initial reaction. So you have action, reaction. Right. Whereas the what we're looking for is action, response. And that break between the two is really self-differentiation. Now, self-differentiation can take many different forms. When I mean, we're talking about some break, some, I mean, you can think about it also as a fire break, where there's fire running through an environment. If you have a fire break, it ensures that there's some place that is preserved from the spread of the fire, that it can spread to that point. And then there is some break beyond which it can't easily pass. And that's how we should be. When we have hmm. an environment where there's all sorts of uh, emotions that are running wild and there's a sort of herd stampede, we are able to receive those things in our environment, to pay attention to them and to be engaged with them in different ways, but not just be caught up within that viral emotion. And so that self-differentiation can be provided in a number of different ways. We could think about the way that time is one of the best ways that we can self-differentiate. Hmm. And we've all experienced this. We've written in maybe a fit of peak, someone has said something offensive and we've reacted to it. And we're just about to press send on that message and we say, wait, I'm going to sleep on this. And then tomorrow I'll get back to this. And having slept on it, the emotions have calmed down. You've had time to reflect. And that intermission of reflection and deliberation now enables you to respond rather than what you're formerly doing, which was merely to react. And so you consider what you're saying. It's not just getting catharsis by striking back or anything like that. It's thinking, how do I get the how do I have a positive effect within this situation? Say what I think is right to say. And how do I say that without just being driven by my passions and by some instinctual reaction to this situation? We can also think about differentiation as physical distance. So for instance, if someone is directly in your face, directly connected to you and shouting at you, it's very hard to keep your cool because that immediacy of their presence is something that can be very there's a sort of imitative spiral that we get into. René Girard's work is often very helpful to bring into relation with Friedman's, uh, where Girard talks about mimetic rivalry, the fact where you have two people that start to imitate each other and become less and less differentiated. He talks about the way that people, a society can become undifferentiated and everyone becomes like everyone else and every rivalry becomes a sort of mirror. Every single person is like their rival. And in that situation, it just is spiraling conflict. Differentiation is what enables someone to act with rivalry towards us and us not to respond in kind. It's the way that Christ talks in the Sermon on the Mount of turning the other cheek or going the second mile. Someone's acted towards you in malice and you respond in kindness and forgiveness or um in a way that does not elevate things, escalate things. Rather, you are able to de-escalate by the fact that you've controlled yourself and your control of yourself 
actually gives the person who's your rival the possibility of starting to control themselves. Hmm. Now, that's another example of differentiation. We could think also about the way in which um, division of different groups. Um, so we have different rooms for and contexts for different conversations. That's another form of differentiation. We can think about the way in which differentiation can be the sort of emotional space. Now, there are ways in which we can be locked into the same emotional space. And sometimes you need to break with an emotional space in order to think and act well into that emotional space. So when we're caught up within the feelings of some injustice, for instance, sometimes it's important to step back and get into a very different sort of realm and think about things from a different position. Or we might think about the way that there are forms of differentiation provided by places. Now, if you're having a form of conflict in discourse, it's helpful to have a sort of realm within which that conflict can take place that's bounded. So we can think about the debating chamber. There's a sense in which there's a clear context for the rivalry and the conflict that's taking place that enables it to be contained. So it's not just spilling into every single area of the relationship that you have with that person. Rather, it's a bounded um, interaction. And then you can go away from that and just go on with your lives and be friendly with each other. Now, that is something that can be expressed through certain um, certain ways of running these things as well. You might think about the way in Parliament in the UK, you don't address the person that you're arguing with directly. You address them indirectly. The right honourable gentleman has said that, and then you're not allowed to directly attack their honour. There are certain things that you're not allowed to do that would actually end up making it personal. So there's a sense in which in argument, there is a form of differentiation when you're arguing about issues and those issues are sealed off from personal attack. So there's a sense, I can argue with you, this is not personal. There's a space that's clearly regulated where we can talk about these differences and then personal attack is not permitted. Rather, this is seen as... Um, a matter of ideological difference between people who have an etiquette that is supposed to encourage them to be polite and respectful to each other. So there's no animosity, but there is this um, argument taking place. That's a, uh, th that analogy of the skin is really helpful because, like you were saying, your skin enables you to interact with a non-sterile environment. You know, and and it's and I, and I know even uh, Friedman talks about self-differentiation as an immune system as well, where the idea is that you keep out the bad things. But, you know, I think about immune systems can go wrong in two ways. They can either be too weak and then they don't keep out harmful germs and viruses, or they can be too overactive and they end up destroying healthy parts of the body. And uh, that to me is a, a very interesting way. And, and the ways you spoke about time, I mean, how many times have we all had a heated argument and then we and later on we're like oh this would have been a better point to bring up and it's like because in the moment you're not accessing all of your rational faculties and um <laughs> it, it reminds me about something in um jonathan Haidt's book the righteous mind where he talks about the elephant and the rider and how we sort of have this rational process and this emotional process and the emotional process is large elephant that we're riding and if it's dysregulated <laughs> You know, your rational part is 
flying all over the place. And that in interactions, you have to be aware of the emotional sort of atmosphere in the person that you're speaking with. And, uh, and, and I, I, I can see how having a regulated environment kind of sets the stage and already creates a precedence of like, okay, we're going to be non-reactive. We're going to be calm. We're going to be reasoned about this. And uh, even just thinking about how today with social media, everything's unbounded. I mean, you, you could tweet something, you could read a blog post, you could respond to a comment, they could respond back, you could speak to somebody. And it's just going to be in your head all day because social media, there's no beginning and end to it. It's just sort of always in the background. And so I, I wonder if we ever even get the chance to self-differentiate because of the constant influx of new you know, stimuli, all, all these different ideas coming at us. Um, I think that's important, just thinking about the fact that there is a sort of structural dimension to this. The self-differentiation is provided in part by material things um, and media and technologies. We might think about the fact that it's very hard to get uh, into a huge sort of stampede of emotion when people are not actually that close together physically and they're not in constant interaction or where there's this delay in their interactions. We might think about the fact that there is a, a difference between the exchange of letters and the exchange of tweets. When you're exchanging letters, there's a bit of time that you're receiving it and processing it. And then that time has occurred long after they've actually written the letter. And then you can take time to consider your response. It's a, it's a longer process to write a response to a letter than to fire off a tweet. And then your response is more deliberate and more um, reasoned and reflective. Now, I think we might also consider the ways that there is solitude as part of that process. Another form of differentiation is just going away from the crowd and processing things in private, having a space in which we are not surrounded by the noise of the world, by the emotional noise of tense and antagonistic relationships. And that is something that not all of us have. Being in a situation where you feel, and this is one of the areas where I think it can be helpful even to think about concepts like a safe space. People misuse that concept and overuse it. But we do need to think from a place where we are not anxious. That's something that all of us need to seek. We need to find places where we are enough away from contexts of rivalry and conflict and antagonism and hostility that we can keep a cool head and think about things carefully and not spiral or become anxious. And so we need to create that within ourselves. We need to create that with schedules, carve out times when you're reading and not actually interacting with anyone on social media. Carve out times where you can reflect and spend time in prayer and, and think about scripture, whatever it is, something that enables you to bound off a part of your life, a part of your attention and a space from all these forms of conflict. And the space is important as well, going into your closet or spending the time in solitude, in um, reflection in nature, for instance, where you've left your um, mobile device behind at your house and you can actually just keep a calm um, head and actually think about things without all the distractions that we have. Now, 
when we think about our technologies in light of that, we can see many of the deficiencies. Partly, it gives no differentiation of time. This constant movement and propulsion forward, if you do not respond immediately, the conversation's moved on without you. So you have to respond almost in a reactive way or get left behind. The other thing is that everyone is joined in together within the same conversation. And if we're going to speak with wisdom, we need to speak in words in season. And we need to speak words with a knowledge of the people that we're addressing, the context into which we're speaking. But on social media, there are so many different contexts, there are so many different people, and you just do not know how you're speaking to uh, these things and what you're speaking to. And then we might think about the ways in which we are brought emotionally close together. So there is this viral movement of emotion through a large, ma large mass of people who are all focused on the same thing. There's not a sense of different rooms and different contexts that provide fire breaks. And as a result, what we have is a very fast moving, reactive conversation that easily falls into the dynamics of tribalism, the sort of stampedes of herd emotion that easily prevents people from reflecting and deliberating and taking the time to form their own self-differentiated self-differentiated vantage point. Rather, it's a matter of taking on the vantage points of the crowd and very much against some other rival party. Actually having that space in which to think clearly in your own space to actually receive ideas and um, policies and whatever it is, all these different proposals that might come in your direction and actually weigh them and consider them and reflect upon them and deliberate about them and then respond to them. That space is not provided to us. And as a result, the thinking that we need to engage in is broken down just by the medium itself. The medium has an inbuilt tendency that is hostile to the sort of thought that we need to encourage. And it is amazing how something as simple as shutting off your phone for a few hours to read and to think or to pray, it forces us, a, a, it, it creates a block of time within your day where these things aren't intruding upon you. And then you start to realize that sort of, deafening silence of, oh, I had no idea how many of these things were just coming at me constantly. And uh, one, of the, one of the concepts you write about, and, and well, you take this from Friedman, is the idea of a gridlock system. And I found this to be fascinating and kind of the natural extension of things you're talking about. If we lack these self-differentiated uh, ways of thinking, if we lack these non-anxious spaces that we can have discourse, the system gets gridlocked. How do you see the evidence of that gridlock in uh, Christian circles? Maybe even specifically, are there unique ways that conservative, more conservative Christians are gridlocked versus more liberal-leaning Christians? Yes, I think the concept of being gridlocked is a very helpful one. In part, it's the breakdown of the imagination. The imagination is almost that which enables us to have a more playful relationship to the objects of our inquiry. We're not just following um, in some sort of mindless way a certain process of reasoning um, just instinctively. We're actually stepping back. We're able to explore ideas, to hold them a bit more lightly, and not just to react against the threat that appears most immediately to us. Now, for me, I've found this is absolutely integral to the way that I need to read the scriptures. 
So this is one of the areas where I think evangelicals and conservative Christians have really struggled, that we come to the scriptures with a sense of these are the cultural battles, the, the, the theological, the philosophical, and the political battles that we're fighting in our day. These are the threats that need to be addressed. These are the truths that need to be maintained. And then we go to the scripture looking for answers to our questions about how we can uphold these issues. Now, we do need to address these threats and these issues and questions, but when we're address coming to the scripture, we need that sort of imaginative freedom and that attention that precedes all of those things. I think one of the things that people often fail to realize is that not all questions are good ones. A question sets hmm. you off on a mode of inquiry and an avenue of inquiry, and many questions can be leading you down a dead end or cul-de-sac. It's going to take you to a point where you're actually not going to get anywhere. Um, and what you really need to do is to proceed your questions with close attention. And so I find when I'm reading scripture, read through the text four or five times and then think, what question emerges from this text? When I'm reading through this text again and again, what sort of question arises from the text itself? Not the questions that I'm bringing to the text, but attending to those things that emerge as I'm listening from the text itself. And often that will be some weird detail within the text. I mean, why mention this? Why tell the story in this way? Why um, give us this specific detail? Why introduce this character with these words? Why use that particular unusual expression that we only find in this one other part in scripture? And so all that act of attention is a way to move beyond the sort of gridlock where your imagination is so engaged with the conflicts and other issues of the day that you're not able to hear the text for itself and take that sort of free imaginative approach relating to it in, in which it can actually move you beyond your questions altogether. And so those questions may be responsible for leading you into impasses that the questions themselves can never dissolve. And the more that you look at the text in terms of those questions, the more you'll find the text isn't actually helping you. And so the impasse is just more and more frustrating. And what you almost need to do is dissolve the question to recognize this is not a helpful avenue to think about this issue. Let's step back. Let's look at the text on its own terms and then move forward. Now, that's an illustration, I think, of a, a broader, broader issues of um, imaginative gridlock that we might think about in our relationship to society, that we're so aware of conflicts and antagonisms and of enemies that we're not able actually to step back and to think of imaginative ways of responding and um, interacting with these. We instantly go to the antagonistic posture without actually thinking, are there ways of escape that have been provided to us? Are there ways actually that we can make peace with this supposed enemy? Is this actually a conflict that's necessary at all? Are there ways in which we can integrate these concerns within our approach? And so just having that freedom to take these things that are thrown in our direction, to weigh them, and to have that distance by which we are not immediately reacting against them, but can actually weigh them and respond, that I think frees us to move beyond some of the impasses that we have as a result of our imaginative gridlock. And that gridlock is expressed 
in our imagination. It's expressed within the way that our communities are dysfunctional, in our relationships, all these sorts of things. There needs to be almost a point of freedom established within a gridlock system. And that is established by self-differentiation. It's that skin that enables mm. an element or an, an organism within that larger environment to be operating on principles other than those that are rendering the environment and everyone within it dysfunctional. And so it's that ability to be the person within our, in our, our environment that has the capacity of response when everyone else is reacting. The, we need to be the people that are able to step back, not to react, and then to, through that capacity, to give that freedom to others and to act as a position of free responsibility and response ability to, through that, enable others to take our lead and do the same sorts of things themselves. And that is the way that the sort of imaginative dis gridlock can be um, dissolved, but it takes a lot to do that. I had an experience sort of with that. I remember years ago when, uh, you know, when I started to read N.T. Wright and then it was sort of like, you know, N.T. Wright was like the worst heretic in the world or he was right about everything and we have to change everything. And it was very much that black and white thinking. And it wasn't until I, I started to read. And I think this is an important part of discourse. When you find people who you trust who have a nuanced view of somebody that may be outside of your camp. So, you know, I would read, um, you know, authors who had, a, I think, a very balanced view, even some people who would interact in critical ways with right, but were still very understanding and gracious. I think of a guy like Doug Moo, you know, he yep. would write and interact. And I thought he was very well-rounded with that. And when I started to remove reading, you know, Romans, out of the debate over justification or new perspective and stuff and just started to read it. I started to see that Wright had picked up on things that I missed when I was just trying to prove justification by faith or even Calvinism or something like that. Like I, I think about Romans 9, it's, it, it wasn't initially written by Paul to, you know, be like, just in case people are wondering about Reformed theology, I wrote this <laughs> chapter. But there are many other themes within it that you miss if you kind of go in with you're already, I want this text to do something for me rather than what is arising out of this text and how can I let that shape the questions that I ask it once more or something like that. Um, but, but again, I, I, I am curious, do you think that there are particular forms of gridlock in conservative circles that are unique to conservative, and I don't mean politically, but I mean sort of in the more evangelical conservative versus more left-leaning liberal Christians? I think a lot of the gridlock is seen in some of the political partisanship that we have, which makes it very difficult for us to step outside of a particular framework where certain views are agglomerated into a single package and to think about things on their own terms. So I think we'll often find this within, I mean, you'll see it theologically, you'll see it politically and socially, this ability to recognize the parties that are in conflict and actually not to join with any of the parties, but nor to take that sort of what the third position can sometimes be as a reactive position against the reactivity, which is a sort right. of meta dysfunction. Um, what you need That's to do right. is to be engaged, to think about the different perspectives and to weigh them up and to actually recognize there are ways in which we can 
dissolve some of these antagonisms. And so I think within conservative circles, often you'll find the struggle is when particular positions have become so freighted with questions of um, party uh, line and orthodoxy that people aren't able to weigh them carefully. Now, I find this right as a good example of this. There is that sort of inability to consider right as someone that you can take good things from him, but you can also see limitations. You can think about, okay, he may not be arguing for imputation as we understand it. Is he trying to maintain what we want to maintain by imputation using other categories? Now, that's the sort of question that you can have if you have that greater degree of imaginative freedom relative to your object of inquiry. Now, I think within a very partisan, fraught environment, it's very hard to do that. Now, I think we'll see the same issue on political issues, the same dynamic on political issues as well, or on ecclesiastical conflicts within a particular denomination. Often, there is not the ability to step back. Now, I think this is, again, part of the benefit of having constant engagement with outsiders who are friendly. You mentioned the experience of reading people like Mu and Wright, who are opposing viewpoints, but yet opposing in a fruitful way. Their interaction is one that actually produces light, not just heat. And often what we've, we have when we just have this engagement primarily with insiders and see outsiders as in terms of conflict, we lose the ability to have different vantage points from which we can view the issues and weighing up the different perspectives to actually develop a greater degree of freedom relative to the issues, that we're not just responding to or reacting against some position that is immediate to us and emotive, emotive and freighted with all these um, party um, issues, but we can recognize there are these different vantage points. We can weigh up these different perspectives within a wider conversation and come to a considered position that just does not have that party freighting with it. And so I think often what the issues are within conservative circles are the intensity by which we are connected to each other. And the fear and the anxiety and the other things that rule our relations, making it very hard for us to take any vantage point, whether standing ourselves outside of the system or listening to others outside of that emotionally anxious, um, fused system. And so that ability to step back, I think, has often been an issue also within contexts that are very tightly integrated and connected and in constant interaction, but yet they are almost sealed off from friendly and um, hopeful listening to voices from without and also encouraging voices within that are not just determined by those um, anxieties within the system. So I often find when you're talking into certain contexts, that conservative Christian contexts, there's this background anxiety that you feel. Um, how does this relate to the political and social and cultural battles that we're facing? How is your position going to play out? Is it going to give weight and strength to our opponents or is it going to reinforce our position? Now, I find this is a frustrating thing when we're coming to the text on issues like one of the issues that I've spent a lot of time looking at, thinking about gender within scripture. 
when we're looking at scripture on its own terms, much of what it's giving us is not going to be a knockdown argument against some opponents, nor is it going to be something that's deeply reinforcing our own position as a sort of um, great wall against any opposition that might come our direction. It's not an arsenal of um, ammunition that we can use against opposing viewpoints. Rather, much of the time, it's far more subtle. It's leading us into the truth in ways that are susceptible to misuse. And when we are acting with attention towards the text and not thinking, how can I use this text against my enemies or use it to defend myself against my enemies? We actually find it gives us a lot of instruction that does not fit those criteria, but yet which nonetheless leads us into a knowledge of the truth. And so for me, thinking about those issues, a key decision has been to step back from the context of conflict and the questions that arise in those conflicts and actually think about the text on its own terms. And then when you speak out of the text, you begin to see there's this huge framework of truth that then you can speak into the specific debates. But the specific debates are going to give you this, as it were, you're looking through a keyhole at this vast terrain of biblical truth. You end up focused upon a few odd verses here and there, and generally within those verses, a few key words, and you've lost the sense of the wider territory of truth that scripture furnishes to us. Now, you've mentioned in some of your writings about, you know, if if, if maybe a more conservative circle, like you were saying, is marked by this fear and anxiety, and maybe even a, a, a volatile kind of reactivity, um, but on on more left-leading sides, there's the empathy trap. And Friedman talks about that a lot. Um, can you talk about the empathy trap? Yeah, so I'd say empathy is found on all sides. Um, the empathy trap, it's not the same thing as having compassion for people. Rather, it's in terms of that sort of emotional reactivity and the entanglement that um, Friedman is talking about, where our feelings become fused with other people. Now, he talks about the way in which in a dysfunctional organization, often you'll have agents of dysfunction, people who are just unregulated, unself-regulated, end up getting everyone else caught into their spiral of reactivity and their dysregulation. Now, they do that in part by the mechanism of empathy. So when you see someone who it says that they're suffering, that they're being persecuted, whatever it is, it's very easy to respond with an immediate empathetic response to that. You might think about the experience of seeing an infant crying. You instantly are empathetically drawn to that child and you want them to stop crying. Now, within a community, that can be someone who has some sense of grievance and then they're projecting that out in complaint, whatever it is. And then everyone thinks we need to deal with this. We need to set this person. Um, we need to remove this person's sense of victimhood, whatever it is. And as a result, we end up being driven by their um, feelings. And there's also this flip side to it. Some of the most violent people can be those who are driven by a sort of empathy like that. Think about the child who is attacked by a predator. The mother is not going to be, well, let's look at the, the predator's perspective too. Let's think about 
how that <laughs> that bear is thinking about things or that snake. I mean, that's not the way you think. That enemy needs to be defeated and destroyed. There's no sympathy. There's no empathy for that predator. And often within our communities, we can have that dynamic. You have a particular party that you're supposed to feel empathetic to. And then as a result of that, you cannot actually take the vantage point of any opposing party. It's seen as this conflict between good and evil, between predator and prey, and you are on the side of the victim and you need to defend them. Now, within a community, often you'll find that that person who's using empathy can get their way just by everyone capitulating to them. You can think about this in a dysfunctional mm-hmm. family where there can be this one person who never is getting their act together and everyone in the family starts to order around them to prevent conflict. They can become conflict averse and so there'll be one that will engage in humour. There'll be another who will put the blame onto some other family member and they end up bearing the blame. If they actually stand up to the person who's causing trouble, who's not dealing with their addictions, who's not dealing with their um, dysregulation, whatever it is, that the more that they stand up to them, the more that they end up being blamed for causing conflict within the family. Because the moment that they stand up to, let's say, their brother or their sister, they are in the position of, you are the one who's responsible for this conflict. You (laughs) poke the bear, as it were, And now that they're causing all this antagonism within the household, we are holding you responsible. Everyone else is tiptoeing around this person. You should know better. You should tiptoe around them too. Now, that's the sort of dysfunctional empathy that we can see within some communities. Often it will be a matter of someone who really seems to be a victim, who presents themselves as being mistreated, and they'll use the feelings of the community leverage those to get their way. And what we need is not to disengage from such people, not to be in a situation of cutting ourselves off emotionally. That would be the sort of quarantine or sterilization approach. What we really need is to be engaged, but in a way that is responsive rather than reactive. So we're considering these positions carefully. We're able to take a compassionate approach where we take on board people's Consider people's feelings, but consider other feelings alongside those. And don't just get sucked into a particular person's feelings and palliating their sense of discomfort or organizing everything around them so that they are not offended or inconvenienced. It seems like I know the empathy conversation was a large conversation, you know, six months ago or something like that. And as I was listening to some, you know, people interacting over that idea of whether empathy is sinful, whether it's good. And in my mind, I I kept seeing that it seemed like there were two groups that had a different set of what is the most pressing concern. I call it like the Jeremiah problem. Everybody thinks they're Jeremiah and everybody thinks the person that they're opposed to is not. When people are discussing empathy um, or people are discussing issues on a larger scale about race or COVID or men and women or something like that. Um, I would imagine that they know about, you know, not wanting to be reactive or they're they're not stupid. You know, it's just that they think that they're the one self-differentiating. And that's where I kind of get caught up even in my own self, where I'm sure somebody like maybe Mark Driscoll thought he was (laughs) self-differentiating. And in fact, you know, he was bowling people over. So that's the, that's the difficulty. Um, 
how do we deal with that Jeremiah problem, thinking we're the, we're the prophet, we're the one who is able to see things as they are? I think on the question of are we self-differentiating is an important one to ask. And I think anyone who has read carefully and thought through Friedman will have found that they start to do things differently. They are clearly far from perfect, but they are changing things to become more self-differentiated. It's certainly been my experience that having read that book, I gave a lot of thought to my practice, the way that I formed community, the way that I engaged in particular contexts, and even in some cases just stepping back from them, the way that I interacted with particular people and how I created dynamics within my own life to protect myself from just falling into an antagonistic spiral. Now, when we're thinking about these sorts of questions, Often, as you say, the questions about empathy can be bound up with this larger question of what is the great threat. And so the threat is empathy is the power of the woke movement. And so you need to avoid that. On the other hand, there are those who see, okay, empathy is what we need to address all these issues of abuse within the church. The church has not had empathy for women, for um, people of color. It's not had this sense of um recognizing the experience of others and actually reaching out to them emotionally and being present and connected with them. And so you have these two highly fraught understandings of empathy that are bound up with this larger cultural conflict. Now, I've never found that the most helpful way to think about what we're talking about when we're thinking about empathy. What I start with is this is about myself. And so, as Friedman talks about it, leadership is very much dealing with yourself first. You have to lead yourself if you're going to lead others. And so, rather than focusing upon this empathy stuff, the church really needs this. My neighbor, I, I see he has an issue with this and he needs to get this sorted out. Start with yourself and focus upon the areas in your life where you are emotionally entangled. Think about why you're emotionally entangled. Interrogate your emotions. Start to think about how you could relate to that issue in a way that is not disengaged, emotionally disentangled, that is not distant or antagonistic. And often people think the alternative to being empathetically entangled is to be distant or cold or callous or antagonistic. And that's not the alternative. The alternative is being engaged it's as we have in the, the example of a skin, you can actually be more engaged if you have a skin than if you don't. And so you're able to be near to that person to think through their issues, but not just to instinctively um, react against or for them. And so in that situation, it can be being able to sit down with someone, listen through their problems, not being threatened by them. And I think often you'll find this when you talk with um Christians, you'll find that you're talking with them and you have this sense of anxiety from them, that if you hold a different position, they feel threatened by that. And when they're talking with non-Christians, you can feel that underlying anxiety that we're having to mm-hmm. argue here to win because we feel threatened by the existence of this different vantage point. And what we really need to do is establish calm within ourselves confidence in the truth where we can be near to someone and engage with them and really listen to them and try to understand them with love and charity 
and yet not just um, be so entangled with their emotions that we just go along with them. And so for me, the start is deal with yourself and don't focus upon how this is useful for other people. Focus upon it, how you can regulate your own reactions to things. Think more clearly about things for yourself. And then often you'll find that people will look to you for that for themselves because they recognize they want to be self-regulated. And they see you're saying things that aren't just playing into whatever the sides are and you're not driven by anxiety. And so maybe if they want to avoid anxiety for themselves, they can do the same thing. And it's certainly been my, my experience that those are voices that I gravitate to. When I see someone who's in a situation that's fraught, they are able to think about things without just reacting. And that's the sort of person that you want to be around, to be shaped by, because they have a sort of freedom with re relationship to the positions that others don't. And so the alternative should not be empathy or callousness or empathy or hostility. Rather, it's the ability to First of all, think through all these issues of empathy without doing so against an imagined foil. So we're not thinking about empathy because we need to deal with the problem of woke Christianity or something like that. Or we're not trying to argue for empathy because we need to deal with Christian nationalism, whatever it is. What we need to do is think about these things on their own terms. And then having established a healthy emotional dynamic within ourselves, to be present in contexts where all these things are in the air, without being anxious, without constantly being in a volatile state or reacting against things. And once we've got that, I think we'll find that we can engage in those, in those conflictual um, arguments without being caught up in the conflict ourselves, and often with an ability to diminish the conflict for other people. You mentioned in, in Self and Leadership about how um, especially when talking to non-Christians, there's sort of one position that's sort of almost um, this, in, this invasive need to, be, to prove the certainty of a position versus almost in the, the uh, enmeshed, entangled need to say, well, if we're just nice enough to people, they'll become Christians. If we just apologize profusely. I, in my mind, I almost think like the empathy trap would be somebody says, you know, we don't have enough room for lament. And then the church goes, let's have, let's have a lament week where we just cry all week. And then some blogger sees that and makes fun of it and memes it, you know, and then says, what we need is, you know, <laughs> a, a, a week in the, will, in, the, in the wild with all of our men, you know, learning how to like shoot guns or something. I don't know. Like it, it's sort of this ping ponging back and forth. Um, but one of the things I am curious about is, the, the idea of, of, of the one part of reactivity of that need for certainty. And yep. as Christians, though, don't we want to be certain of some truths? And, and how, how do you, uh, yeah, just open that up a little bit more. What, 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 what does that reveal, this quest for certainty? And, and is that always a bad thing? Is it a good thing? What, what's, what's the deal with that? I mean, we need to think about the ways in which we can be confident of things without being certain. There's a sort of anxiety mm. that underlies certainty. You might think about the way that if you started a particular line of inquiry, you would soon find that you would become anxious on just about any issue. You can think about the person that gets starts to question their health and they can become a hypochondriac, mm -hmm. hypochondriac or the person right. who starts to question um, how their partner feels about them. 
And then suddenly they're drawn into this web of suspicion and paranoia and doubt, and they just can't trust their partner anymore. Now, there is a degree to which certainty actually, the quest for an unrealistic, excessive certainty that pushes us beyond our creational limits can actually end up falling into extreme doubt and uncertainty. This is, of course, one of the issues within modernity. On the one hand, you have this quest for extreme certainty. Then, then on the other side, as its flip side, this extreme suspicion and doubt and inability to arrive at any knowledge. And as Christians, we are those who are called to trust. And that trust requires something less than the sort of certainty that less is probably not the right word. It's something different from the sort of certainty that people are looking to. The sort of certainty that has a grasp um, on our, within ourselves on every aspect of truth. Trust needs to recognize we need to look to other people to hold these truths for us. There are many things that I know, um, in inverted commas, that I've not experienced firsthand. I mean, I know the existence of Australia. I've never been to Australia. I've never seen Australia. I've heard reports of Australia. I've seen it on a map. And so I know it by trust. Am I certain of it? Well, <laughs> I, I would call myself certain of it. But if I actually were going to investigate that fully, and if someone were going to question, do I have an absolute rock solid certainty? Do I know that all the people that have told me about Australia to this point have not been lying to me, that all the reports and witnesses that talk about it, that those are, those are not inaccurate, that I've not been dreaming at all this time, that if I look at a map, I'm just not going to, that it's still going to be there. I mean, that sort of question, I think, is a good <laughs> illustration of just how little certainty we have, absolute certainty, but how much of our knowledge that we genuinely, genuinely do have does not need to be certain to be real. And so the sort of certainty that people have within a situation of anxiety is always troubled by suspicion, paranoia, and doubt, and distrust. And so as a result, people end up knowing a lot less. And what we need to do, I think, is to have healthy contexts of trust where we can have knowledge that is not absolutely certain. It recognizes our creaturely finitude and limitations, the limitations of our minds, our understandings, our networks of knowledge, the different reports that we have heard, and are able to hold things and act confidently nonetheless. Now, that requires a management of the anxiety and all these other things that can be a struggle otherwise. And so, Often, I think we'll find that we know things better when we are not anxiously seeking for certainty, but are able to be in a situation where we have taken in a number of different perspectives and we act with a knowledge of our finitude and our fallibility on the basis of that. And that is the only sane way to live, really. Um, if we tried to live on the basis of absolute certainty, we'd be paralyzed and we'd be in constant doubt because you cannot attain to absolute certainty, not even within your own faculties and your own mind. You might feel absolutely certain, but the more that you actually start to question, is, is there something wrong with my mind? Am I thinking about this clearly? I've been mistaken before. Could I be mistaken again? The more that you start to do that, the more you find it's a rabbit hole and you never actually get out of it. 
that's a good way to put it. You could be confident in something without being absolutely certain. I think you, were, you didn't use the word, but you were talking about tribalism. I, I remember joking with people like once sort of uh, mask regulations were lightened in our city. I was like, well, now we're going to find out who everyone voted for. <laughs> it's sort of like everything's bounded up. If you are anti this, anti this, anti this, you voted for this person, you believe this. If you're pro this, da, 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 da. And uh, the irony is sometimes you're like, you're right. <laughs> so, and is it is it that we, is that something that we've created? We've just put people into these tribes or are we recognizing that actually there is a correlation between these particular beliefs and people holding sort of a whole web of these ideas together? I think often there will be a sort of um, temperamental affinity between different positions. So people with a particular temperamental or political posture will tend to be drawn to different types of positions and they will tend to cluster. But it can be helpful just to look to different societies and see how the same issues play out very differently in very different contexts. And so people who are theologically conservative can be very much on the left over here. Um, not with all the progressive stuff that you have in the US, but... Talk about the UK, just yes, so everyone knows. Yeah. He's in the UK. <laughs> and so in that sort of situation, you begin to realize maybe there is some unbundling that we could engage in. Maybe we can recognize that these positions, while there may be an affinity between them within our context in the way that they play out, they may not always play out in this way in different contexts. And as you look at the issues in their own terms, there are ways that you can weigh these things in a disaggregated manner. You take them apart from each other and you recognize these things can be examined on their own. There are merits to these particular differing positions, seemingly polar opposites, that within other contexts are not actually politically polarized. They, And so, for instance, you could not tell what way people voted by whether they wore masks or not over here. Um, it just doesn't have that same sort of salience. Um, and so you begin to think, okay, what are some of the things that do create the difference? Uh, what are some of the things that give people an affinity with this particular cluster of beliefs or, or that? And then also recognizing the ways in which having, being able to step back from the immediate agglomeration of these views, you're able to develop a degree of freedom in relating to them and then pass that on to others. So I think one of the ways that we can talk about certain, think about certainty is the certainty of having a context where people agree with us and the sense of the certainty that comes with a bundle of beliefs. Now, what I think we'll often need to pursue is a context where we're able to be confident in our position, not in a desperate way, but confident to be near to people who disagree with us strongly and to hear them out and take on board things that they're saying. Because a skin is not, it's not a complete barrier. I mean, a healthy skin takes things into it. It's not just a complete barrier, but it's a, it, it is a barrier that enables you to regulate what's taken in and what goes out. And so at times you need to sweat, to perspire, to ensure that your body's heat is regulated. At other points, you need to take in the the sunlight. And if you're not getting those sorts of, if those things aren't happening with your skin, something's wrong. Now, in our sorts of relationships with other people, I think often we'll find that we are in this situation where we are so certain and we need to push against them with greater force to ensure that they submit to our position. And often 
the response is just digging in. They dig in their heels. They push back even stronger. And often what I found is the best way to go through these issues is to be calm, not to feel any need to persuade them, and just to present the position and step back, give them the space in which to think through these issues themselves and not put them in a position where they're threatened. Um, and ideally, we want to create those contexts for ourselves where we can recognize, okay, these views are normally bundled, but do they have to be? Let's create a space for myself in which I can think through these issues. Let's gather as many voices as I can gather from contexts where these issues are not as fraught as they are in this immediate context in which I find myself. Let's listen to these different voices in fruitful conversation and then let's weigh up the positions. And often you'll find that you move to a position that while you're still engaged in your context, you're not entangled in it in the same way. You'll begin to recognize, okay, there are some points on the other side here. There are some limitations to this vantage point. I still really disagree with this position of this side and I cannot accept that, but I can see where they're coming from, even though I see that they're very much wrong. Um, and that sort of freedom is something that we need to create for ourselves. It's something that will enable us to unbun unbundle these positions, which I think is largely a result of these fraught contexts where we're constantly in interaction with each other, polarizing interaction. And then that drives us to these, I mean, you can think about, there's this period of time after something has happened, which is a fraught event. And there's this brief window of time when you're wondering, how is this going to play out in a partisan way? And there's this moment where it could go in different directions. I can think about the, the Will Smith slap. I mean, that can go in different ways. There are many different ways that you can read that. And then there are certain tribes that start to read it in a particular way, and that takes hold, and then everyone's reading it that way. But there's that window of time when it could go in a number of different directions. And you could think about it in a way that is not reacting against some other party's take on it, that actually has on board some of the things that they will later have as part of their insight. And if you're not doing that in quite such a polarized context, you can maybe think about it clearly, more clearly. And so what I aim to do is to create a context within which I am not in the storm of these um, polarized viewpoints. I'm able to listen to the calmest um, voices that I can in a non-antagonistic conversation I'm looking for outsiders and their perspective on my vantage, on my context. And then I'm trying to regulate my own context. So have context of solitude to think through these. Don't listen to social media before you've actually started to process this for a bit hmm. yourself. And then try and develop your own principles and deliberate a bit. And then you can start to listen to other people. And then you're weighing them up not on the basis of a, an instinctive reaction, but having considered the issues yourself. Now, all of this is to say, I think a lot of these polarized positions and these bundlings are a result of the context itself. It's not something that is integral to the positions. We will find these hmm. affinities, but they are definitely over-determined as a result of the, the high anxiety, the volatility and the emotional tensions and um, gridlock of the context in which we find ourselves. 
That's a fair, I mean, the, the, the need to persuade. And I, I think that's a fascinating idea to think about. There is an anxiety behind that. Like you're saying, I've noticed when I get especially heated in a, you know, I'm debating or disagreeing with someone, I can notice a tipping point when I'm, I'm, it's going to affect my integrity as being, my being, if they don't submit, if they don't agree to what I'm saying. And then it bothers me. And I realize it's no longer about the idea. It's about something more fundamental about my identity. And it's built in an insecurity. Whereas if I were self-differentiated, I could leave and go, you can have your thought, I can have mine, and I can engage with it and, and learn from it. But I don't have to have an existential crisis or something like that. And, and that, that sounds like an overstatement, but, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the Babylon Bee just had, you mentioned the Will Smith stat, slap, and it said, uh, as covered by 14 different news outlets. And uh, it says, for Fox News, Oscars plagued by rise in black-on-black crime. <laughs> but for the Huff Post, it says, the patriarchal roots of slapping exposed. <laughs> and so you kind of see how these, you know, black and white, uh, no pun intended, but the sort of polarized opinions sort of can view the same event through a very um, deterministic lens or, or, or a very sort of, and, and there's an anxiety behind it. I mean, part of the anxiety is that we need to have a take. I mean, do right. we really need That's to right. have an opinion on Will Smith's slap? I mean, what difference does it make to our lives? Is this the sort of thing that we just have this context where everyone is having their opinion and as part of our identity, we need to have an opinion too. We need to join one of the sides. Is there a possibility that we just don't have an opinion worth having or don't have know enough about the situation to have an opinion worth having? And we might just shrug our shoulders and step back from it or just not care that much. It's just not that important. I think the other thing that I've found important is recognizing that when we're having some of our disagreements, so many of them, I mean, I I like having a a strong argument with people. I do not like it being personal. Um, Now, it's very easy for these things to become personal. But often what you'll find is when it switches to being personal, it's very hard to think about the issues themselves. And so all the time that you're there talking with this other person, they're reacting against you. And the issue actually, they are constantly rationalizing on the issue. You may have better arguments, but they really care about defeating you because you have become an obstacle, an opponent, etc. And so often what is the most helpful way to present an opinion to someone is in a way where you present it and remove yourself immediately so you cannot be the obstacle or opponent. And you just... I mean, I find when I've argued with people on some issues, it's different when you're doing it in a more public environment. But if you're doing it one-on-one, often what can be very good is just give them a series of questions and leave them to deal with those questions. And hmm. don't do it antagonistically. Just say, I'm, I'm curious about your position and genuinely be curious. You want to listen. Do you want to understand where they're coming from? And then you raise quest- thoughtful questions that are attentive to their position. And then you step away and leave the question with them because you're not trying to get any, you're not trying to win the conversation. You don't want them to lose face. You're not trying to get them to stand down at that moment in time. You're just wanting them to weigh these things up and to do so ideally in solitude. And so I find for myself, that's how I need to think through things. And so I want to give other people the opportunity to do that too. So when I present a position, I'm not needing to persuade them. I'm 
presenting my position in a calm way. I'm listening to them and then they can actually weigh, weigh it up. Now, these things are different in a more public discourse, but in one-to-one conversation, I've found that very helpful. That's a good way to to practically think about that when you, it, it's, um, you know, something that, the, the, when you talk about the personal aspect, I, I think about that on the ground level of like, oftentimes you hold a position because you heard it from a writer that was very formative in your life. Uh, he wrote a book that saved your marriage. And then if he's wrong about this thing, then you start to question, or you became a Christian through this denomination and they believe these things and that's hard. And, and so there's all these personal entanglements that make it very difficult or, or at least show the need for self-differentiation to go to say, I benefited from this person or I benefit from this church or this movement. Um, but I can distance myself to disagree while still appreciating the fruit that it brought to me. Especially when you think about sort of thought leaders or people who lead sort of tribal, these tribal entities, they're very self-assured and there's something intoxicating about that. You (laughs) want to attach yourself to that because it gives you a sense of foundation and a solid ground to which you can interact with the world now in, in a confident way. And when that person's position is threatened, your foundation is threatened as well. And that puts you in a, in a very vulnerable situation. I think the way that often people who seem confident in their position, often there's a sort of, there is a sense of threat that any single position that opposes them, they need to attack it. Um, and the ability to actually have an opposing position and just not attack it, um, just allow it to be there and to work with it. I think it's a sign of a different sort of confidence that can be very helpful sometimes. You recognize this person is wrong, but I'm going to talk with them calmly. I'm not going to try and attack their position. I'm going to try and set them straight. But that, I think, when you see people doing that, you can sense a, a greater confidence that is at work within their position. I think the other thing is that the ways that these things are within our context can be seen, for instance, in liberals who come from an evangelical perspective originally, and now they identify as ex-evangelicals. And that has become integral to their identity. They are opposed to what they once were. And everything about that is seen in the most negative light. They're constantly reacting against anything that actually seems to um, serve their reaction. They will latch on to, they'll join up with these particular forces that are criticizing evangelicals. And the ability of someone to say, okay, my upbringing was not perfect. There were all these sorts of problems. I would not want to raise my kids in quite the same way. But I see also all these good things. And I recognize uh, these things that I want to hold on to. And the ability to actually have that differentiation where you're not in reaction to the upbringing, nor are you in fearful clutching onto it, not able to move beyond it, is really important. It enables you to actually, in that case, to, as it were, leave your father and mother and become your own person. But Hmm. it also enables you to stand and relate to all these different viewpoints without doing so in this way that gives you no repertoire of response. And that's one of the things that I find helpful, thinking about What repertoire of response do you have? Ideally, you want to be able to respond in many different ways, not just knee-jerk reaction against or 
a strong knee-jerk knee reaction for, where you have to defend any, anything that's attacking that position. If you are well differentiated, you'll be able to take a number of different postures relative to it, and you'll be able to do so calmly. And you, it's the idea of a response ability, the ability to respond. And someone who's reacting does not have an ability to react. You just react. It happens. And you're led along by that reaction. The person who has response ability is someone who is able to take a number of different self-considered postures relative to a particular set of events or persons, and they're not bound up with that. And then as a result, they're able to engage with those people in a way that might actually be productive where they're not just sparking reactivity on the other side, but they're actually giving something of their own self-differentiation as a means by which people can separate themselves from the emotionally fraught dynamics. That, I don't know if you meant to do that self-responsibility. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if, is it, if, there, if there's some etymology to that, but response, you know, being able to respond requires responsibility. It requires a... a, a, a taking ownership of your own reactivity and your own emotional regulation and saying, that's not somebody else to do for me. I need to be able to do that for myself. And, and that leads me, and this will be, I, I know we've been going for a while, but I, I do want to get your thought on this. Toward the end of your book, you have this really fascinating insight about how the church, the church's self-differentiation is orthodoxy and that a way forward is re-injecting humor or the joy of the gospel into our conversations. And um, I, I'm very, I'm, I'm very, that, that's a very interesting take on it. Can you, can you open that up a little bit more? Well, I think one of the things that I found helpful in thinking about many of these issues is the Sermon on the Mount, where Christ talks about the way that we are bound up in these sorts of relationships with the people around us. We do our good deeds to be seen by men. We pray in order to be seen by men. We are acting towards an audience. And that sense of being entangled with an audience and we care about how they view us, that's all something that comes often with reactivity. And the ability to actually separate ourselves from the entanglements of the culture war that we have with the relationships that we have with other people where we're so emotionally entangled with them, separate ourselves from the conflicts that we're having in all different quarters of our lives and actually be present to the Lord in a context where there is no conflict or should be no conflict. We are seeking to be reconciled with God and we are receiving the reconciliation that has been given to us in Christ. That enables us to have a context of peace and calm from which we have the freedom to relate to everything else. And it gives us a sense of liberation to be in the world without feeling so entangled in the world that we're always reacting to things. We are not ultimately threatened by the things that are at work in the world. Christ has overcome the world. So we can be present within the world, see its dangers, take those dangers seriously, but without doing so reactively. And so we can speak into those with a degree of, I think humor is one of the ways in which we can have an engagement with things that is not determined by them. Humor enables us to talk about things the person who's reactive, the one thing that soon gets lost is their sense of humor. And often a lot of modern humor is reactive in its 
in its essence, and it's become unfunny as a result of it. People are just expressing their antagonisms against the other side or ridiculing others. There's less of a sense of them having fun. They're not able to step back from the issues and enjoy the ability of responding. And so what we're really, one of the things that we gain, I think, in ordering our lives towards the Lord is the freedom to relate to our neighbour without anxiety. And so I found, for instance, if I'm having an argument with someone, one of the things that is very helpful to resist antagonism is to pray for that person. While you're interacting with them, pray for their good. Not that you would win the argument, but pray for their good and try and see them not as an antagonist primarily, but as someone whose good you're seeking in some way. Another way to think about it is not focus, if you're having a public context of discourse, not focus upon the person that you're attacking, but focus upon the person on the, the bystander who's listening in, who's calm, who's not on one side or another, but try and persuade that person. Don't focus upon the person who's over against you. And within the church, then, I think one of the things that the church should be doing is trying to seek not just as individuals, but as the church itself, to be shutting itself up in its closet, to be acting in a way where the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing, to have a context where we are not preoccupied with what the world thinks about us. We're not preoccupied with the culture wars. We're not preoccupied with the conflicts that we have in our families or other things like that. But we're able to bring the calm and the peace of a mind set upon Christ to those conflicts. And so we're able to be present within those conflicts and those contexts without being determined by them. And so when we we should be engaging within cult, cultural wars, but doing so in a way that's not determined by that, we're able to be calm. And that's not the, I think in some quarters, there's this almost, um, this laughter that, and this sense sense of humor that is not, there's a sort of anxiety underlying the sense of humour, that the, the laughter has a sort of edge to it, the sort of edge that you find in a lot of modern comedy, where people are, there's an underlying sense of antagonism that the humour's serving. But the actual freedom to be able to, for instance, laugh at ourselves, to take certain things lightly because we are taking other things seriously, all of those things, I think, are something that we will be able to develop quite naturally as we pursue the things that we are taught to pursue, which is pursue Christ and to seek true worship. And as we do that, we will have something of the freedom and the differentiation from the world, because the more that we're relating to Christ, the more that we're seeking the, um, the um, approbation of God, well done, good and faithful servant, rather than acting towards our neighbour to be seen and judged virtuous by him, the more that we'll be able to act with a freedom within the world because we recognise that we are not of the world. We're in the world, but we're differentiated from it. That's a good word. I mean, that's very helpful. I, I'm, I'm so grateful that you came on and, and gave some of your time uh, for us. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, oh, I do have one last question, though. This is very important. What is your take on Will Smith slapping Chris Rock? Uh, 
I, I'm just kidding. You don't have. To. <laughs> yes, I do not have a take. <laughs> I have th- I have thoughts, but I'm not going to give any sort of take. Oh, Alistair, it's April April first. It's April Fool's. I don't know if you guys do that in the UK, but you should have you should have posted a really really long. <laughs> I wish I had the time at the moment it about would be like fun. you know <laughs> Christian take on that'd be great the, on 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 the ethics of Smith, Will Smith slap. slapping Chris Rock. Thank you so much, Alistair. You can follow Alistair, Alistair Roberts on uh, Twitter. Zugs wanged. His uh, profile says nasty, British, and short, <laughs> which maybe I should have just intro the show with that description. Uh, he also has a blog, Alistair Adversaria. And uh, if you can find his podcast, uh, it's incredible. It's got daily reflections, some of the conversations he's been having. Make sure you subscribe to that. And uh, I think that will be a great gift to you. Alistair, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for the invitation to join you. It was a delight. <laughs>